turn to Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. I want to say thank you to Tony Sauls for preaching what seems to be two months ago. It was actually just two weeks ago, but uh, thank you to Tony for filling in there and, and jumping in there and beginning this, uh, the book of Colossians. It's been a crazy couple of weeks, and uh, I'm grateful to be back. I missed, uh, that was a tough call last week that uh, the elders that we made and canceling, but we feel like it was the best, uh, safest call, not knowing uh, what would happen with the storm. And so thank you for your, your graciousness and your understanding. I, I look forward to being here with you guys on Sunday mornings, um, but, but I feel like that was the, the right call uh, for, for all of our sake. And, uh, um, but today I want to build on uh, what Tony began in, in verses 1 and two, and I want to look at something particularly in verse two. And uh, I think as we come to the Bible, it's very easy to just read the words on the page and 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 run through it quickly. And and this is something that, as I've been studying and reading Colossians over and over and over again, this is something that, uh, as I sat down and really was diving in, jumped out to me. And and I believe it's a truth that I, I want to spend the next two weeks looking at in verse 2. Uh, as I started digging into this and, and really studying it, um, uh, I had about 13 pages of notes, and I felt like, yeah, that's probably not good. That's probably too much for one sermon. Um, and so I, I capped it, and then unfortunately for, for all of us, I kept telling my wife, when you're stuck in the house and you can't do a whole lot, as I studied... That number grew, and it grew, and it grew. Here I thought I'd have like a 30-minute sermon for you. I'd make everybody happy. It's not going to be just 30 minutes. So I forgive me. Forgive me. Uh, I, was, I had nothing to do, and so I just studied. And, but I say all that in jest because the reality is, is we could spend the rest of our lives... Look, look at verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren... In Christ, who are at Colossae. That that phrase, in Christ, who are at Colossae. Listen, brethren, we could spend the rest of our lives digging the depths of what it means that you and I as believers are in Christ. In Christ. That's really, that's really the, the antithesis, the, the, the opposite of what we've looked at over the past few weeks leading into Colossians as we looked at these false postures, uh, that how we relate to God. The, the reality of Colossians, we've said the, the theme of Colossians is unrivaled. The reality is this, the, what God has offered us in Christ is unrivaled. Rivaled. It is a relationship with himself. He, he has offered, he has performed everything. He's done everything on our behalf that sin could be dealt with. That we could be brought into a right relationship with God. That, that we as believers have been removed. And in sin, Romans 5, we were in Adam. God has taken those who have placed their faith in the death of burial, resurrection of Christ, who, who have submitted them, again, in doing that, submitted themselves to His Lordship. And He has transferred you, Colossians 1.13 says, to an entirely new kingdom. That kingdom is in Christ. 
Whereas a sinner, we were in Adam. Now we are in Christ. A whole, whole, new, whole new realm, if you will. As Colossians 1.13 says, an entirely new kingdom. And as a way of quick review, as we, we build into this, we, we looked at these, the, the challenges is we, we begin to assume these false postures. Even in Deuteronomy 6, when, when Moses is taking the Israelites into the promised land, in Deuteronomy 6, one of the very first things he says to them, and God says this, when you go into that promised land, listen to me, listen to me, when you go into the promised land and there's olive trees you didn't plant and cisterns you didn't dig and homes you did not build, here's the, here's the danger. You know what he says to them? Don't forget me. That land's going to be full of milk and honey. Land's going to be full of blessing. You're going to have... It's the promised land. It's where we've been trying to get you guys forever. And here's the number one enemy. It says, do not forget about me. And, And I would argue, guys, the same thing is the danger for you and I today in a land flowing with milk and honey. In a land full of things that, listen, we didn't do, we didn't build, we didn't plant, we didn't do any of that. We're the recipients. And the danger that faces every single one of us is to forget about God. Is to elevate self and forget about God. Is to take credit for things that we didn't do. To be assuming of things that we didn't deserve, blessings that we didn't deserve, and to forget about God. And that's really the core behind these false postures. These false postures that we looked at, the reason, the the danger, really the, the, the problem with them is they attack the sufficiency of Christ. They, they attack the sufficiency of what God did in crucifying His, in sending His Son to take on flesh. That right there is, 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 is beyond comprehension that God would take on flesh and dwell among sinners. And then to die for sin that He didn't commit. To pay the penalty for sin that He didn't commit. To be our substitute? There's no other religion, none, that rivals that. And here's what it offers. Here's what he did that to offer you, a relationship with himself. And all these false postures, they fall short of that relationship, of of understanding what it means to be that Christ is in you and you are in Christ, that, that literally God with us. We looked at life from God, and that was a position that, that we can fall in the trap of, of assuming where we, we seek to use God to get God's blessings. It's, it's a posture where you want God's blessings, but you're not particularly interested in Him. No real relationship. You're, you just want to use Him. We, we looked at life for God posture and and that's where we find our identity in some activity that is done for God rather than the relationship that we've got to perform we end up living on our own strength we end up relying on our own strength our identity becomes in what we do and not who we are that we are in Christ we we looked at life over God and, and that's where the relationship with God is abandoned for proven proven principles kind of a best practices 
where, where it's the idea that, look, God kind of wound this whole universe up. He spun it into motion, and now it's up to you and I to, to just make the best of it, to, to find those best practices. Be we really don't need God. He's really not made himself available. He kind of spun the world in motion and put, put his hand, took his hands off. That's deism. They, they, wouldn't they wouldn't say there's no God. They just say he's not a God that can be known. He's not a God that, you, that, that can be relate, that's not relatable. That, that can be experienced, if you will. And, and then there's life under God, and, it, and, it, and it's where we begin to live where we have to constantly appease God and, 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 and try to satisfy Him. And again, if you were to go to Romans 3.23 through 3.26, the reality is the word of the word propitiation. It says Jesus Christ is, is the propitiation for our sins. That word literally means appeasement. It literally means satisfactory payment. You and I cannot appease God. Jesus Christ, who was perfectly righteous in giving his life up and dying for sin, perfectly appeased God, perfectly satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God. Therefore, God now can forgive sinners rightly. And he can maintain his justice and his righteousness in forgiving a sinner. Why? Because a perfectly righteous Christ died in our place, appeased God, satisfied God. That's what the word propitiation means. That's what the gospel is. That's the good news. And, and what we've said and what we will see in Colossians is that all of these, all of these false postures that we're all prone to falling into fall short of the real communion that God has offered, the relationship that God has offered us through Christ. They make God out to be something that He's not. Christianity offers a relationship with God. Something, again, that no other religion offers. Intimate communion with God. Knowing that we have a relationship, that God is satisfied, that we are in right standing before God. That's what Christianity and, and, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ offers you. Not work, 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 and then hope that the scales tilt into your balance. Not work, 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 and wonder at the end if you, were, if you were good enough. And if they're not, look, we'll reincarnate you and we'll give you another try. No, no, that's, that's all the other religions. Work, 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 and then hope. Christianity says, no, no, it's finished. It's done. God has been satisfied. He's been appeased. He's been propitiated. His righteous demands have been satisfied in the work of Christ. It's, again, we, we say it all the time. It's 2 Corinthians 5.20. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. All the way back in Matthew 5.20, he says to the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, he said this to Israel, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. The Pharisees were the religious of the religious. They found their identity in these false postures. And you know what Jesus says? It's not enough. If your righteousness doesn't exceed their righteousness... You've got a problem. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. That would have been a shot across the bow. I mean, if they didn't have the righteousness that would get you into heaven, listen, no one would, and that's the point. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. As a sinner, I can't appease a righteous God. And yet, God 
the scandal of really the gospel is grace, that God would crucify his son and then declare sinners to be righteous who place their whole trust in Christ's work and now invites them, sinners, into his presence. Scandalous. Unless it's true. The whole idea there is substitution. That we can then be restored to that Edenic fellowship that Adam and Eve experienced with God before they sinned. The, the offer of Christianity is, is a life with God. Communion with God. Not just simply have your sins forgiven and then go live how you want to live knowing you've been forgiven. That's not Christianity. Again, that's using God for what you want and then going and living how you want. It's missing the point. We saw it in Peter. The goal of the gospel is God. God, God crucifying his son, it, the purpose was to reconcile you to God. He's the gift, not the stuff. And, and Paul is, I think Paul is, is setting the stage for that. Again, the unrivaled nature of what the gospel offers you, what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers you. If you're, if you're here and you're a believer, I, I want you to, to help, uh, I want to help all of us, and even as I study Colossians, dig into that more deeply and better understand what we have in Christ. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I, I would hope that you would see the awesomeness of what Jesus Christ offers, what God offers through Jesus Christ, and how it's unparalleled in all the world. And all the other religions, all the other false ways that we would say by faith are wrong ways to get to God. Christianity, again, is far superior. And what is, what is offered is so superior. That's what Paul is saying. It's incomparable. And the challenge for us as believers is, though we're saved, though our salvation is secure... We still, and though spiritually we've been transferred to a whole new kingdom and realm, if you will, we still physically live in this world. We still physically live in a world that's marred by sin, that, that has, that has uh, uh, temptations of sin. And that's why Paul is going back over and over to help you understand what it means to be in Christ, the sufficiency of of our salvation and the position that as a believer we hold by being in Christ. We have been transferred from Adam, which is marked by sin, into Christ, which is marked by righteousness. And everything about our lives is to flow from that. Listen, everything we see in Colossians, just like in all of Paul's letters, all the, all the commands, all the imperatives in, in, in the Greek the command would be called an imperative. All the imperatives flow are rooted in what is called the indicatives. Meaning this. First of all, Paul is going to show you what God did. Namely in Christ in the gospel. And then he's going to show you the proper response to that. But everything is rooted in being in Christ. Everything is rooted in the gospel. It's not, it's not you earn or add to it. No, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory flowing out of you, living through you. And that's what Paul is saying here in Colossians. And so what I want to do over the next few weeks is help us to understand the, 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 the kind of the dual, the, the locations there, that not only we, we dwell here physically, but spiritually 
we're, we're seated with Christ, as we'll see today, and we need to understand that. And, and that's what Paul is getting at when he says, to those who are in Christ at Colossae. And so on your handout, you see the first point. As believers, I, I, ho- I hope we'll make this clear over the next few weeks. I hope I can answer our questions regarding this over the next few weeks. As believers, we have a physical location that affects our lives a great deal, both good and bad. But we must remember that this is not our true home and where our citizenship is found. Again, Paul says, to those who are in Christ at Colossae. Listen, the location matters. Where you live matters. Just like like today, living in Tampa offers a specific set of struggles, a specific set of temptations. There are certain things that come with living in Tampa that maybe another city may not offer you the same temptations. It was that way in Colossae. And Paul is writing the letter letter to the Colossians to a group of believers who were located in a city that was called Colossae. Colossae was a a metropolitan city. It It was located on a major trade route. And because of this, there was a lot of traffic that flowed in and out of Colossae. And because of that, they were introduced to a lot of different theologies, if you will, a lot of different ideas. And the temptation, what was happening, the temptation at least was to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, and kind of bring it all together and meld it in to sort of a superior religion. Take the best of this one, the best of this one, the best of this one, the best of that, I like that, and bring it all together and mold it into something that was superior. In, in their eyes, at least. And you see it on your handout. Theological syncretism is a danger that Paul addresses in the letter. It's the mixing of many different religions and beliefs. The word syncretism, it means to take all these different parts and bring them together in one. And, and this is still alive today. This, this danger is still alive today. Mix it together and just get kind of the best of the best. It was difficult in that culture, just as it's difficult in our culture today, to, to maintain what we would call a pure form of Christianity. I think we would, if we were honest, that that is a danger even today. Go on to your schools where your kids, where your kids spend a lot of their day and listen to all the different beliefs and, and, and systems of thought that exist. Turn on your radios, turn on your TVs, and, and listen to all the different ideas and thoughts and and and. and ideals that people have that the world throws at you for you to adopt. I mean, this thing called the internet has put every, everything is at the click of a button. And, and again, what Paul, that, that idea of syncretism, there's a, there's, a, there's a danger, even in James 2, he says, see to it, he says that they have, verse 1, They have added to their faith a spirit of favoritism. In their mind, they thought it made sense to serve the rich or to give favor to the rich. And and James is saying, no, 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 that's not Christianity. That's not God's wisdom. It's tempting for every single one of us in here to take Christianity and then to add to it these philosophies and these wisdoms of the world. And Paul is saying, no, the gospel is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. 
And the, the challenge, you see it on your handout, for the Colossians and for us as well was to be in the world, to enjoy God's creation and all that comes with it while not conforming to the world and its ways of wisdom, not falling in love with the world. That, that's what Paul deals with in Romans 1. Do not be conformed to this world any longer, but renew your mind. Being in the world and not of the world. Not falling in love with the world and the creation, allowing it to allure, to allure us away from dependence on Christ. If you were to go to John 12, John 14, John 16, you would see Jesus refers to, Christ, to Satan as the ruler of this world. The present ruler, if you will, of this world, this world system. And he doesn't rule alone. There's a whole army of fallen angels, demons at his disposal, but Satan doesn't have ultimate, he doesn't have ultimate sovereignty, ultimate power. That alone belongs to God. But Satan seeks to use this world and the things of this world to draw us away from, from allegiance to Christ. To fix our hope on the things of this world and not Christ. Even we saw it in 1 Timothy. What was the deal with riches? That we would fix our hope on riches. It's not bad. They're not, they're not bad in of themselves. The problem is, is that we begin to hope in our riches. We begin to hope in the things of this world. Look, look with me at, at 1 John 2. Listen, 1 John 2, 15 and 17. Listen what, listen what John says. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Again, the world's system, it's the world's ways. If you were to go to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says that Satan uses the things of this world to blind the minds and the hearts of the unbelieving. They're blind to the goodness and the grace of the gospel. Why? Through the things of this world. And, and you see it on your handout. Satan seeks to use the things of this world to blind us to the realities of Christ. If you would go to 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, it says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Why? To deceive you into thinking you're something you're not. It, it, go to James 4, 4. Listen to what James says in James 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus himself said it. You cannot love both masters. You can't love God and mammon, God and money. He says you're either going to love the one or hate the other. You can't love them both. And, and that's the line that we as believers walk in this world. I mean, to think you, you think about this world that we live in and how accessible and easy sin has become. And, and in Colossae, this was the case. It was a metropolitan city. Again, they didn't have to go looking for false views. They came to them. People would come from that trade route and they would find themselves in Colossae and the, the believers there would learn and hear and they would, they would be introduced to things that were not pure Christianity. All this the wisdom of the world and all these philosophies, they would make their way to Colossae. Listen, think about you and I today and how easy that is. Internet. 
I was re- think about this, Facebook, Snapchat. I mean, I was so grateful for the silver ring thing and, and the, the wisdom that they offered with regards to those things. I read a study even this week. Statistics say that one-third of all divorces now mention that Facebook had a role in their divorce. One-third. Listen, what used to take a lot of work, tip of your fingers. Tip of your fingers. Way back in Genesis 4, you know what what he said? Satan's crouching at your door. Listen to me, believer. Satan's crouching at your door. Sin is crouching at your door. 1 Peter 5, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know how he does it? Subtly sometimes is just by luring you away to the things of this world, luring your heart away from, from devotion and trust in Christ to devotion and trust in stuff. And that's a whole lot more sexy. That's a whole lot more palatable. Well, I don't, I don't, I'm not addicted to pornography. I just love the ways of this world. Listen to what he says. You know what James 4 says? That's, that's an, you're an enemy. You've made yourself an enemy of God. Well, I don't do that. I just do this, enemy of God. And to, to what happens and what Paul, I believe Paul is getting at in, in verse 2 is our identity is not so much in where we live, but who we live in, Christ, who is in us. And, and believers must be wise, you see it on your hand now, to the physical location because Satan seeks to use the culture we live in to impact our walk by, by, by getting us to have a preoccup- preoccupation with the things of this world, and now we have no time for the things of God. I mean, all throughout Paul's life, the things of this world, Paul constantly found himself in prison. If you were to go read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, of all the things, all the circumstances that Paul found himself in, trying to, again, alluring him away, and he maintained a singular devotion to Christ. And again, you see it in your hand now. The end goal of Satan through our culture is to take our attention away from Christ and focuses it on our circumstances and the things of this world. The, the tendency, the temptation for all of us is to, to blend in, to lose our focus, to, to rest on our physical location, to, to become circumstantial. It's to lose sight of why we're here. And I want to give credit to, to, to Bradley. I know he gets, sometimes gets used for a brunt end of, of illustrations, and, and, and uh, that's the joy of being a preacher's kid. Him and Sarah, they, they, God teaches me about me. He teaches me a lot of things through my kids that um, I gave Bradley a hard time. He was at some friends the other night, and he, they came out, and he said, Dad, can I spend the night with them? And I said, yes. And he said, man, I told them there was a one in a million chance you were going to say yes. Like, what does that say about me? Man, what do you think about me as a dad? Yesterday, I'm studying, and Bradley is having his quiet time, and he comes in, and I said, well, Bradley, let's talk about it. And He says, well, Dad, I was in the book of Haggai, and He's telling me the story, and it reminded me. It reminded me of, of the battle and, and how applicable and, and, and how personal this battle has always been. And, 
in, in the book of Haggai, the, the people are returning from Babylonian captivity and, and they've been given the task of rebuilding the temple because that's where that, that temple represented God's presence with his people. That's where in the Old Testament where God's presence rested with his people. The temple was immensely important and it signified God's presence. And Bradley and I were talking about this and it, and it made me think about over time, because of opposition, if you know that book well, guess what happened? The people stopped building the temple and they became totally focused on their own homes. They set aside doing God's work to the primary attention of their own work. The temple that signified God's presence was in ruin and these people are building their own homes and building their own kingdoms. And the prophet is, is calling them and charging them to build the temple. And what he's doing is he's confronting them with their misplaced priorities. They're building their own kingdoms and neglecting God's. They were building their own homes and neglecting God's house. And all throughout Haggai, this is what he says. Over and over, God confronts the people. And here's what he says. Consider your ways. And I thought about, as I was talking to Bradley, how that applies here. One of, the, one of the descriptions of the Word of God and its power, if you were to go to 2 Timothy 3, 16, is correction. That word correction, it literally means restoration or improvement. It's a word used for a city that had fallen into ruins and needed to be rebuilt. And from that word made its way to, to literally restoring one's ethical behavior or character. And think about this. In sin, we have been marred, ruined, if you will. God's image and all that was in us through sin has tainted that. A fallen character. Paul says in Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And our flesh and our, and our physical nature, we can find a home here in this world. And our, our flesh loves this world. And yet, the Christianity is literally, our sanctification is literally God restoring, rebuilding in you His image or His character. Taking us back to that Edenic state as we were created to be. Now, one day, again, we'll never be perfect, and one day we'll be glorified, but, but Christianity, he, listen, you and I are in a rebuilding. God is rebuilding in us. He's restoring in us. And the Word of God has the power to do that. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, For all Scripture is God breathes and is used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God is training us. He's restoring us. He's literally rebuilding us. And, and ironically, you and I, now are the temple of God. See 1 Corinthians 6. We're the temple of God. He dwells in you. He dwells in me, believer. And Satan, through the things of this world, wants to distract you and I from what is most important, namely God's kingdom, by getting you and I, believer, to focus on our own kingdom, to put down God's work and pick up our own work. To put down giving up our life for God and take up living our life for ourselves. And to think it's okay under the guise of, I'm saved or Christianity. And, and all of that runs counter to this word. 
And at the same time, listen, we are in a, look, look, we are in a physical location, but we're in that physical location for a reason, for a purpose. God is not overwhelmed by Satan as his attacks. He has not left you and I ill-equipped to fight and defend ourselves from the fall in these traps. There, there will always be temptations to settle for less than Christ. To fall in love with this world, but God has not left you ill-equipped. 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. John 14.16, I'll not leave you as orphans, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to live in you. And guess what? He goes on to say, greater is He that lives in you than what? He who lives in the world. You don't have to fall in love with this world. You don't have to obey the ways of this world. You don't have to give in to sin. That's a lie. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. And the temptation is to fall in love with the things of the world and to see Christ's work as insufficient. That's what he says in, in Mark 8, 36 and 37. A very, a very convicting, a, a challenging passage for if we're honest for every one of us. Listen, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Or are we going to be a people that trade in temporary joy for everlasting joy? We're going to, I mean, we're going to trade in everlasting joy. Or we, as Christians, we're going to give up temporary joy because God has promised us everlasting joy. The temptation, though, is to live for the temporary joy. To gain the whole world, and look what Mark says, forfeit your soul. Why? Because you can't serve two masters. To, the danger is to trade in eternity for the pleasure of this world, to allow the things of this world, or, or to think that we can add to, in Colossians, Christ's work. And, and the, what Paul is saying is, and what I'm saying is, our physical location and all that it brings with it cannot be ignored. But and Paul didn't do that. Neither can we. That, that's the goal of this letter. That in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, that these believers would understand what it means to be in Christ and their light would shine. How? By totally trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. By denying things of this world so that their light would shine. In Colossians, what Paul is doing in Colossians, you'll see it on your handout, is helping believers understand the work of Christ, that they would be so fully satisfied in Christ that the world would have nothing to offer them. And the reason why the things of this world are so alluring is, is quite honestly because so many of us are starving. We have not, we're not fully satisfied with the things of Christ, and therefore the things of this world have appeal to us. Versus being so satisfied in understanding of the work of Christ that this world has nothing to offer us. It's what P Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that we are to live as sojourners and aliens in this world. Why? Because it's not our home. In, Nove excuse me, in November, Lord willing, a group of us are headed to Costa Rica led by Josh Finkley. The culture is going to be different, food's going to be different. Clothes are going to be different. The language is going to be different. Everything about us, you, you, when you go to these countries, you live, you don't really get settled in. Why? Because it's different. It's not your home. 
And mission trips are reminders, they're, they're recalibrations, they're, they're pictures of what you and I believe and how you and I believe ought to be living here. Because this isn't our home. I, when we leave here and go to 11 o'clock, there's, there's one word that I want to talk about with our, with our middle school boys, and it's this word distinct. What does it mean to be distinct? And that's your fill-in on, in the next fill-in. It's our distinctiveness that causes us to stand out in this world, to serve as light. It's not blending in. It's not becoming a hodgepodge of the world's views and Christianity, just kind of forming our own. No, it's, it's maintaining a distinctiveness on your campus, student, at your work, mom and dad, in your neighborhoods, on the rec fields, whatever it is. It's, it's, there ought to be a distinctiveness about believers. There ought to be something different. Christ ought to be exalted in those things. And in the midst of our physical world, we can't deny that. But, but what we have to maintain is that this is not our home. And, and that's what Paul says again. In Christ, to the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. The primary description that Paul uses for believers is in Christ. And, and that's the second point. That's what I want us to realize over the next few weeks and kind of dig in. As believers, we have a spiritual location that impacts everything about the way we battle and face in our physical location. And the remedy for what Paul puts forth here in their fight against false teaching is a full understanding of Christ and His work. Understanding that it's satisfactory. Listen to, listen to what he says. And I want to show us some future verses. We won't dig into them, but I want us to show them to you so that you understand the flow of this entire book. Colossians 1.27, To whom God willed to make known the riches of His glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that they, we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I labor, striving according to His power that works in you, in Christ. And, and that's what I, again, what I want to pack is, is what it means to be in Christ. To, to understand what it means to, be, to have a life with God. Even in Colossians 2, what Paul is putting forth. See to it, listen, that no one takes you captive, verse 8, through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Listen to what he says. For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Do, do you see the sufficiency of Christ? You don't, get, you don't get more deity or more closeness by doing these things that the world says. No, it's in Christ. And that Christ that is full deity dwells in you and you in Him. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is trying to, to get at. And, and what Paul puts forth, you see it there on your handout, is the need for believers to orient themselves around the full understanding of what being in Christ means and brings for their lives. Listen to Colossians 3, verse 3, verse 2 and 3. Set your mind on the things above. He says, starting verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, 
Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You realize that, believer? You see the security? You see the sufficiency? Set your mind somewhere other than the things of this world. You're hidden in Christ. Security, fullness, completeness, sufficiency. Christ meets every spiritual need that we have. There's no need. Listen, there's no need for what these false teachers are offering. There's no need for the things of the world. There's no need to worry about the world's applause or the praise of men or all these other things. Why? Because of what Christ has done. And I would dare say a lack of real understanding of that work is why these things are so appealing. Because we don't understand what we have. It would almost be like, and again, I hesitate to, I hate to use, use illustrations and try to teach about God. I mean, they fall so short. But it would be like if you, like, that we have these smart TVs. And this TV does so many things that I, I, our kids know more about it than I know. And I, I just know to turn the thing on and off and where's channel 570. That, that's, my, that's my TV. That's ESPN. Like, if you turn our TV on and I've been there, that's the channel it's going to be on. But, I mean, this thing has, you can click this one button and there's all these options on the bottom of the screen that you can do. The problem is this, and this is the illustration. Suppose not knowing what that TV could do, I went and bought all these gadgets, all these extra gadgets, and let them up and set them in front of the TV, expecting them to do what the TV already does. How foolish would that be? Listen to me. We're looking for the world, and we're looking for all these things of the world to offer us what Christ has already offered us, what God has already offered us in Christ. We're looking for all these things of the world to do for us what Christ has already offered. It's being satisfied in Christ. It's digging in, not just being, not just being satisfied with, oh, I'm, I'm saved. No, it's digging in and understanding one who saved you. I mean, we are, again, we are, you see on your handout, securely located in Christ. We have everything we need for life and godliness. To put it another way, and it's there on your handout, to be in Christ is to belong to Christ through belief in the gospel. You belong to Him. Sometimes the Word of God pictures that as a relationship to a child to a father. Sometimes the Word of God pictures that to a slave to a master. Again, all trying to paint the picture. You are not your own, believer. You've been bought with a price. You know what the response is? 1 Corinthians 6, therefore glorify God in your body. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And listen to this, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Fullness, the gospel, raised up, seated, full, these are present realities. Colossians 1.13, as we said, a, tra- a, a transfer from one kingdom to another. What, what Colossians calls for and what I'm, what I'm calling for through the study is you'll see it in your handout, a reorientation of your entire existence around Christ. 
we'll, we'll get there in 2020, I suppose. But chapter 3, he talks about put on your new self. Every single aspect of your life is impacted by your relationship to Christ. Oriented around who you are in Christ. That's where he's getting at. Again, even in Philippians 3, Paul says the same thing. Verse 20. For our citizenship, talking about believers, is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state in conformity to the body of His glory by the exertion of the power of, that He even is subject all things to Himself. Again, it's our union in Christ. Again, even back to Ephesians 2.7, your whole existence and position in Christ is to demonstrate God's grace and awesomeness before a watching world. Even verse 10, why were you saved, brother? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. What's the purpose of those good works? To show off God's grace and mercy. To show off his awesomeness. And, and you see it on your handout. We weren't saved to spend our lives on ourselves and things this world, but, by, but for spending our lives and making much of the one who saved us. And it's a fuller understanding of our position in Christ that changes everything. Christ is sufficient. He alone is unrivaled by all other things, and that's Paul's point. Again, back to those false postures. Not rules, not science, not tasks. You know, life under God sees the world as governed by a moody, inconsistent God. Life over God places science at the center of everything and practices. Life from God assumes the world orbits around you and I. Life for God sees activity. You know, they, they all miss the relationship. And that's what I'm trying to instill in, in the two little children that, that God has given me in our home. That look, you, you don't come to this book for information. You come to this book to spend time with the one who saved you. It's a relationship. It's intimacy. You come to this book to understand what he's done on our behalf in spite of our sin. You come to this book to understand what he, what he has set out for you, not only in the future, but now because of your salvation. The fact that he's offered a relationship with himself now and you see it on your hand now, the beauty and scandal of Christianity is that God satisfied His own righteous demands through the work of Christ and in return offered us a relationship with Himself. And that relationship is to be at the center of everything. And all these false postures, what they miss is the relationship. And at the center, listen, at the center of everything is not a list of rules and rituals to follow. That's life under God. It's not the implementation of principles. That's life over God. God didn't send a genie to grant our every request. That's life from God. Nor did he give us a bunch of work to earn his favor, life for God. Instead, you know what he did? He offered himself. He offered a relationship with God. And how do we experience this relationship? It's through the Word. It's time in the Word, praying and fellowshipping, all Word-centered. That's why, again, we'll get to it eventually in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving. Listen, it says the summation. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. 
Where does it start? The Word of God richly dwelling in us. Ephesians 5.18 would be the same passage. It talks about controlling. Whatever's in you controls you. You fill up a cup with pure water, you spill out that cup, guess what you get? Pure water. You fill out that cup with half well water that's not had power to it, that's why you can't drink the water. It's not going to kill you, but just to be safe, don't drink it. There's signs everywhere. I've called, it's being tested, it's been tested. When a, when a well has gone without power for 24 hours, the state mandates that it be tested. You can wash it, you can flush it, just don't drink it. But... um. The point is, you fill that cup up with half unpure water, half pure water. You know what you get? It's unpure. Believer, you try to fill yourself up with Christ and the things of this world, you know what you get? Impure. You know what the world around you gets? Depends. We can't starve ourselves of the Word. Paul's going to make that very clear and expect for the Word to rule our lives. We can't starve ourselves of the Word and expect Christ to rule in our lives. And to be in Christ means, listen, that you have been united with Christ and it's a relationship. That's why marriage is such a beautiful picture. It's a relationship. It's not about the dates. It's not about the bills. It's not about any of this stuff. It's about a relationship. And you could go to John 15 and see it. We won't because we've got to get out of here. We've been here long enough. But it's about abiding in Christ. It's about bearing fruit through that abiding and in our joy being attached to that bearing fruit. And my, 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 my application for today, whether you're a believer in Christ or not, is this. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Don't be deceived. There, there's coming a day, non-believer, there's coming a day of reckoning where you're going to stand before a holy God and you're going to give account for your sins. And if your answer is not Christ, if you are not found in Christ, you are going to be punished eternally for your sin. And at the same time, I would say, believer, consider your ways. There's coming a day where you're going to stand before God, 1 Corinthians 3, as a believer, and you're going to give an account for how you stewarded God's grace. And it says, you yourself will be saved, but there's the possibility that your entire life will be burned up and go up in smoke if you've built on wood, hay, and stubble. And you can read that in 1 Corinthians 3. Consider your ways, believer. Consider your ways, non-believer. Christ in you, the hope of glory.